All right, some fantastic advice. And uh, it is a wonderful time of year for relationships, being Super Bowl Sunday. Everything just goes so well in the home on a day like today. Uh, but we're talking about, in this series, the complexities of relationships, but not just how complex they are, but how our relationship status, whether single or divorced or married or somewhere in between, uh, how that intersects with your faith, because our relationship status and our faith aren't two separate things. And we're not taking, uh, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks in this. We're not talking about every different aspect of relationships, but we want to talk about a few of them, and uh, in particular, just recognizing that we have a diverse church family and many different relationship statuses represented. So even if we don't get to something that directly applies to you, the idea is you are a part of a larger family. You are a part of a people of God, and you love people. If you're married, you love people who are single. And if you're single, you love people who are married. So learning more about them and learning how to love them is a part of what it means to be the family of God. So last week, we did talk about singleness. We talked about the goodness of singleness. The fact that single people are not somehow deficient or incomplete because they don't have a spouse, but they actually have a gift in a season of life where they have unique opportunities that married people do not have. And married people have a gift in a season of life where they have unique opportunities that single people do not have. And so we need to recognize the value of every single person in our church family. Single people are not living a lower level of life, but can have a very fulfilling uh, status in life, a, very, a lot of purpose and meaning. And these ideas of, of putting value on the individual as a single person, when Paul wrote about this from, in 1 Corinthians 7, it was really strange to the hearers in a, in a culture where marriage and family were everything, your status was completely bound up within your ability to have a biological family. But Paul says, no, 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 when you know the gospel, when you know that when you've come into the family of God, you actually have moms and dads and cousins and brothers and sisters and grandparents and children built into that spiritual family, your identity is no longer in your biological family primarily or your status in relationships, but your primary identity is your status in the family of God. And so your relationship status does not define you. So that was singleness, and I encourage you, if you missed it last week, whether you're single or not, listen to that. Because again, if you're not single, there are people in your life that you love who are. But today, we're talking about marriage. We're talking about the meaning of marriage. What does the Bible say is the purpose of marriage? What does the Bible say we can do to thrive in our marriages? Now, before I begin, this is a tough topic. It's not easy. It's, uh, there's lots of controversy around this because there's so many visions for relationships in marriage. And I need to admit that I'm not a professional counselor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not Dr. Phil. I'm a pastor, okay? So my approach is pastoral. I want to open up the scriptures and bring some ancient wisdom and apply it, apply it to modern life. And if you need extra care and attention, we have a team. Our staff is willing to meet with people. We also highly recommend professional counseling. 
It's so valuable in this world. There's good Christian counseling services locally. We can recommend certain ones to you. But I have many times myself been on the counselor's couch, whether it was just for me or whether it was Rebecca and I. We did it. Sometimes it was because we really needed it, and sometimes it was kind of like taking the car to the mechanic for an oil change, just a checkup, just tuning things up to make sure everything's okay. We just needed someone to take a look at the gears a little bit and send us on our way a little healthier than when we came in. So I highly recommend that, and otherwise, you get to listen to me for the next few minutes, all right? So in August of this year, Rebecca and I will hit 15 years of marriage, which we're really excited about. And, you know, like, compared to many of you, that's just, you know, very few years. But it's also nothing to sneeze at. We feel like God has really blessed us and helped us along the way, and we feel incredibly blessed by our time together. Now, we met uh, when uh, I was in my third year of Bible college, or after my third year of Bible college. Um, and what happened was, when I was in school, uh, she and some friends started to attend my home church. And then when I came back for the summer, all of a sudden, there were all these other people that were friends with my friends. So when I would go hang out with my friends, there were these extra people attached to them. And Rebecca was one of them. And so one of the weird things that happened in that summer with my friend group is for no apparent reason, everybody got obsessed with tennis. Like people who had played before and people who hadn't played before. But you know how among young adults, you can just like have like a fad and all of a sudden everybody's doing it. And so for us that summer, it was tennis. I think the next year was rock climbing. I don't know. I bought rock climbing stuff and then everybody stopped doing it. I was like, what, what's going on? Um, but we played tennis. And so often after church, there was like 12 or 20 of us that would go and we'd play tennis together. And, and it turned out that Rebecca and I were the top two seated players in the crew. And so we often ended up matching up together. And there's a little bit of controversy about who was actually the better player in those days. But I have the microphone, and Rebecca's in kids' church today, so I'll tell you, it was me for sure. <laughs> I was definitely the better player. But we've always had really close tennis matches, and she's one of those annoying players that no matter what you hit at her, she returns it. And no matter how hard you hit it, she just you know, gently pops it back over a looping arc, back to the back line, and just waits for you to make a mistake. That's how, you know, I'm more of a power player running around, and she's just dink, you know, donk, you know, just hitting it back over until I just hit it into the net or get frustrated. So, but that was it. And so, so you know, tennis with friends became tennis with just the two of us, and then tennis with the two of us became tennis, and then coffee afterwards, and then the romance was born, and we are living happily ever after. Everything's been perfect ever since. Why are all the married people laughing? Because we all know the Disney trajectory of happily ever after is not actually true in reality. You know, the Disney movies want you to think as soon as that kiss happens, all of a sudden, all your dreams are fulfilled. Everything's going to be great. The Hallmark movies have the same message. Whatever it is, we get this idea that if you find your soulmate, that perfect person, your souls are going to unite together and you're going to be completely fulfilled and satisfied and happy. And if you should become unhappy at some point in your relationship, then you think, maybe I married the wrong person. Maybe I should trade this one in for a newer model. And then you see this massive divorce rate. You see all this kind of stuff. And, and this would make sense, the idea of trading in and growing unhappy and then finding someone else we can ha be happy with. It would make sense if the purpose of marriage was self-fulfillment. 
If it, it would make sense if the purpose of marriage was personal happiness. But what if the purpose of marriage is something else? What if the purpose of marriage is not just about finding a soulmate and being happy? What if happiness is just a byproduct of something more profound and more important in marriage? And that's the topic of today's message, and it's the topic of a book that I highly recommend to anyone who's thinking about getting married, engaged, you've been married a short time, a long time. It's a book by Pastor Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. And as you can see, I completely stole his title, and so a lot of the thoughts um, are shaped by that book as well. But let me uh, read a quote that he includes in the book from, from a university professor named Stanley Hallowes. He says, uh, destructive, to the mar to, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage, it fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. We, or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Someone else has said, my wife has been married to five men, and all of them are me. <laughs> because as you grow and have different experiences and different challenges and move on in life, there's so many changes that happen that your marriage is going to change, your relationship is going to change, and you need to continue to find ways to grow with each other and love with each other. But here's what Keller says in his book as he defines the purpose, the meaning of marriage. He says, what is marriage for? It is for helping each other to become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. I love Keller's language here, uh, particularly because it connects so much with our church's purpose statement. Our church's purpose statement is, we are helping each other follow Jesus. And you can't help each other follow Jesus. You can't actually follow Jesus outside of community. It's not an individual effort. You need a community. You need the people of God to help you follow Jesus. And, and so that's one of the reasons why you can actually choose to be single and still be a follower of Jesus and leading a, lead a meaningful life. That's why the Bible teaches this. But we also have this other amazing resource, another relationship we have the opportunity to participate in to help us follow Jesus, and that is the marriage covenant. It's this amazing blessing that adds unique help, unique blessings, unique opportunities to walk with this covenant, covenant partner, a co-laborer who's going to partner with Jesus in creating you to be everything God has intended you to be. But before I go further, I want to read a classic marriage text from Ephesians 5. You can open up your Bible or your device uh, to, to check that out. And just a warning, if you're unfamiliar with this passage, there may be some language in it that's tough for you to understand at first. Hold on a minute, because it needs some explanation. It needs a little bit of interpretation. If you're familiar with this passage, there may still be some language in it that's tough for you. But we're going to do some explanation uh, and interpretation for you as we go. So in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start with verse 1 and 2, because I think they give important context. And then we'll jump down to verses 21 through 33. 
Paul writes this to the Ephesians church. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Verse 21, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we're going to pause here for a second. Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus about their moral conduct as a community. Normally when you read a letter from Paul, it'll start with uh, like some theology about who Jesus is, what he has done, why that's important, and then it moves in near the end of the book to more practical theology around moral conduct and how to treat one another and how to be the church. And so here we are at the end of the book of Ephesians, and Paul's talked a lot about Jesus and a lot about what that means, and now he's talking to the church about some practical things, about relationships. And so verse 1 and 2 and verse 21 are generic commands for everyone in the church to follow. Command number one is to love each other. To love each other. Who is supposed to love? Everyone. And who are they supposed to love? Everyone else. Every one of you is supposed to love everyone else in the room. Following? Command number two, submit to one another. Verse 21. And to do so in a way that is similar to the way you submit to and revere Christ. So who's supposed to submit? Everyone. Who are they supposed to submit to? Everyone else. Everyone in this room, including me, is supposed to submit to everyone else in this room. So are you following? Okay, so hang on. Paul's going to use a more specific example and show how this works itself out in a specific example, a specific context of marriage. He uses it as an illustration of how the church works. And so he continues in verse 22. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Two quick things before I get a little bit deeper into what this is saying. Number one, in my opinion, this passage is often poorly interpreted and poorly applied by Bible teachers and just people in the church in general. It's been used as an excuse to treat women poorly. It's been used as an excuse for men to be domineering and dictatorial in their homes. And that attitude completely misses the point of what Paul is trying to say. Okay? That's number one. Number two, people often bristle at this passage, especially women, sometimes because it's misunderstood, sometimes because it's been taught poorly, but sometimes just because you disagree. And that's okay. You have a right to do that today. But if we think the Bible's teachings about marriage and gender and sexuality are outdated, 
it's often because we've grown up in a culture that has loudly and boldly championed a different vision for marriage and family and sexuality, one that's based on self-fulfillment, one that's based on individual desires, and one that isn't biblical. But all we need to do is look around at the results of this different vision for marriage and family and look how it has underperformed and underdelivered. According to Stats Canada, there are between 40,000 and 60,000 divorces per year in our country, which equals 5 to 15 divorces per 1,000 couples every year at an overall rate closing in on 40%. And all the modern marriage advice about how to prepare for marriage, things like living together first and having multiple sex partners to make sure you find compatibility, those activities actually are leading to a higher divorce rate and lower satisfaction once you are married. They're not helping us fulfill the true purpose of marriage, which is to help each other become all that God has intended us to be. And there's this old claim that many of us have heard and many of us have have said that the divorce rate in the church is the same as the divorce rate in the world. If you do just a little bit of research, you find that that's based on one old study that's been thoroughly debunked for decades. It's completely not true. Both Christian and and non-Christian researchers will will admit this. It's completely not true, but it still sticks around as a nice soundbite. There's actually very specific things Christian couples can do that lower their chance of divorce, including regular church attendance and praying together. And so the truth is that there are different visions of marriage, there's different visions of how to do family. The Bible has a vision, and maybe it has some ancient wisdom that will prove more beneficial than some of the modern foolishness we see in the world. So what is Paul talking about when he talks about love and submission in marriage? Number one, he's talking about putting your spouse first. Putting your spouse first. The big roadblocks, especially for women in this passage, are the two connected concepts of one, submitting to your husband, and two, the husband being the head of the wife. So husbands don't often get tripped up about the idea that they're supposed to love their wife. Husbands just don't always do a great job of it. You know, They're not getting tripped up by the concept or by the command. They're just not always doing a great job of it. However, for Roman husbands, in the context Paul was teaching in, this was weird. My wife is for loving? That doesn't make sense. My wife is for... Uh, giving me an heir, and my wife is for other things, but not for loving. But Paul actually spent twice the amount of ink giving instructions to the husbands in this passage than he did in giving instructions to the women. But the wives still tend to struggle with the idea of, am I really supposed to submit? What does it mean for my husband to be the head? Now remember, as we back up, Paul calls the whole community to love one another, He calls everyone to submit to one another. So we're talking about mutual love and mutual submission. Because in this situation, we wouldn't say when Paul instructs the husband to love his wife, that doesn't mean that the wife isn't supposed to love her husband. But he's giving a really intentional, specific command to husbands because of a specific challenge they face. And so we shouldn't also say, just because a wife submits to her husband doesn't mean that in some ways the husband shouldn't also submit to the wife. But Paul's giving a specific command here to the women because of a specific challenge. And so do I think that this means that there's some leadership responsibilities for the men in the home? Absolutely I do. I just think we've misunderstood 
what that looks like and what Paul's trying to tell us about here. So I want you to think about love and submission as two sides of the same coin. It's the same coin, just two different sides. As the husband loves, the wife submits. As the wife submits, the husband loves. They're reciprocal acts of service to one another where both husband and wife are putting each other's interests first. To submit means to come under someone, to elevate them, to put their interests first. And love is basically the same thing, to sacrifice for someone else and put their interests before your own. In a modern context, we often just interpret love as a feeling or as sexual attraction. But in the ancient context, love was all about what you can do for another person. It wasn't how you felt about them. It was what you did for them. It was about how you served them, about how you built them up. And the greatest example of love, and Paul cites this, the greatest example of love is Jesus, who died for us. He laid down all his rights. He stepped off his throne of glory. And what did he become? A servant. So how does a husband love his wife? By becoming her servant. By sacrificing his own self for her benefit. By throwing his body into the flames. By putting her interests well above his own like Jesus did for us. And how does a wife respond to her husband? By serving her husband. By putting his interests first. Think about that beautiful picture. The wife serves the husband. The husband serves the wife. The wife serves the husband. The husband serves the wife. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful vision for the marriage relationship. So think about what Paul says, even as he talks about the husband being the head of the wife. Now again, looking at Roman culture, it was very patriarchal, very hierarchical. They saw submission as about dominance, headship as about authority, but Paul is very intentionally turning that idea on its head. Because the only definition we get for what headship looks like in this passage is the example of Jesus who laid down his life for the sake of the church. And even Jesus said, whoever wants to be first will be what? Last. Whoever wants to become great will be what? A servant or a slave. So men, what does it mean for you to be the head of your home? It doesn't mean that you're the boss and everyone has to listen to everything you say no matter what. He didn't say you are the head of your home like Caesar is the head of Rome. He said you are the head of your home like Jesus is the head of the church. And how did Jesus lead the church? By throwing his body into the flames. By laying himself down. By casting himself onto the knife. By being nailed to the cross for the good and for the sake of those he loved. That's what it means to be the head of your home. If you practice headship like Jesus, you'll be the chief servant of the home. You'll make the biggest sacrifices. You'll be the one who serves the most. You'll be the one who suffers the most. The one who's constantly elevating everyone else in the home and lowering your own position as a result. Because of Jesus' example of what it means to lead through service, the early church actually turned the idea of hierarchy completely upside down. That those who served the most became the greatest and the leaders in the world. But we often slip back into the pattern of looking at culture and taking the ideas of submission or headship or leadership or whatever it is, the ideas that our culture brings into that, and then applying them back into these verses. But we need to resist that and look at how the text is trying to apply them for us by giving Jesus 
as our example. So love and submission are two sides of the same coin. They mean both the husband and the wife serving one another's interests before their own. Number two, love and submission mean partnering with Jesus as he forms your spouse. This is where we get back into Tim Keller's comments about the purpose of marriage. Let's read that again. He says, what is marriage for? It is for helping each other to become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. This goes all the way back to the garden in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2 when, when Adam, and Eve, Adam was introduced to Eve and she came into the garden and, and uh, um, became his partner in his calling. You see, humanity was made, Adam was made to bear God's image. And Eve also was made to bear God's image. And then they were given a calling, which was to rule and subdue creation. We're in charge of this place. We're not always doing a great job, but we're in charge of this place as vice regents of God. He has said, you represent me on earth. You're bearing my image. You're representing my rule and my wisdom and my authority on earth. But then as Adam began that project, God said, you know what? It's not good for him to do this alone. I'm going to make him a helper. And he brought Eve into his life. They became the first married couple, started the first family. But that word helper is not a title that means Eve is somehow secondary or second class. It's the same word used often to describe how God helps people. And that doesn't make him second class. What it means is she was a co-equal partner in the project God had given them as human image bearers to represent his rule in the world. And so we can do that together. She was a partner in fulfilling the calling they had as human beings. And here's the issue. Whenever you marry someone, it's definitely true of me for my wife. She married a fixer-upper. Whenever you marry someone, you marry a fixer-upper. In the process of dating and courtship and the decision to marry someone, you never fully know who you're getting. There were, I heard some yeses, like some very adamant yes. Because in that situation, you're always, you're always doing your best to impress. You're always trying to convince them. You know, that there's, there's the infatuation, and, and when you see each other, you're, you're dressing well, and you're getting prepared. You know, there's always that, that sort of uh, little bit of hiding the dark side. But the dark side comes out after a while into marriage. You know, the morning breath and the sweatpants after work and all that kind of stuff. People are burying their heads. I don't know if I'm making people uncomfortable. But we see this happen. We see the reality of our spouse start to show up later. And we realize, hey, these are actually two imperfect people coming together. And we have a project on our hands. But God has put us together in order to work on that project together. God has given us one another so that we can walk through that process Together, And this is how G uh, Paul explains how Jesus served the church in verse 27. He gave himself up. We are a fixer-upper. We were full of sin and brokenness. And Jesus came and sacrificed his own life so that he can start to beautify us. So he can start to remove the blemishes and the wrinkles and transform us into all that we were originally called to be in the garden so that we could fulfill the task of being God's image. And so as a married couple, that's, that's your journey together. That's the process together. You are called to unite with your spouse on this journey of joining Jesus as he shapes you into what he's called you to be. 
And here, I think, is the secret to that process. And this, you know, you might not find it directly in the text, so if it sounds more like advice, so be it, but I'll just warn you with that. I think here's one of the big secrets to making this project work. The key to a healthy marriage is friendship with your spouse. Your spouse is your friend. Your friend with benefits, but your spouse is your friend. Here's why this is important. Friendship has the durability to last when everything else fades. Some people see marriage and make their decisions about marriage solely on chemistry, attraction, erotic love, but that can fade or it can be uh, disrupted by sickness or injury. And then your attitude toward another, if that's the basis of your marriage, is always a performance. It's always about putting you know, that best foot forward and there's no honesty of who you really are so that you can actually help each other deal with the darker side. But if it's just a performance and your marriage, and, and that will fade and not be able to st- sustain your marriage. But secondly, some see marriage as simply a, a gaining of socioeconomic status. And this might be a cultural thing. Some cultures, particularly those who practice arranged marriages, often it's to build family ties or business ties or, or to strengthen some sort of alliance or, or whatever it is. Uh, other people will see marriage as an opportunity to climb up the socio and economic ladder. You're, you're going to try to find someone who's uh, better off than you and try to marry into that so you can improve your own position. But status, economics, that can change overnight and it can't sustain a marriage long-term. But friendship is durable in any circumstance. Friendship is honest. Friends call each other out on their junk and encourage each other in their strength. Friendship is about standing side by side through all circumstances of life, saying, let's get through this together and hopefully we can have some fun along the way. Friendship is about seeing the best in a person, even when it's hard to see. It's about making room for the faults of a person and giving each other permission to hold you accountable. It's about saying, we have dreams that align with each other. Let's pursue them together. Adding each of our strengths to the accomplishment of those dreams so we can run further and faster than we ever could apart. And when you take all of the best things about a lifelong friendship and then you add some romance and some physical, emotional, and spiritual intimacy as you turn face-to-face in marriage, that's what makes marriage so powerful and so amazing. So love and submission are about partnering with Jesus in the spiritual formation of your spouse. Finally, love and submission are about building your oneness together building your oneness. In verse 31, Paul actually quotes Genesis chapter 2. He says, As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is something that unique that happens in in, uh, marriage, and Paul actually calls it a mystery of how two individuals become one in the process of marriage. That doesn't mean your individuality disappears. It doesn't mean one person gets absorbed into the other person, but it speaks to an intimacy and a togetherness that's unique in the covenant of marriage. You share goals and dreams together. You have the same values and vision for the future. You share responsibilities and you share successes and failures. 
So whether, you know, whether one person in the family works and the other uh, primarily cares for kids, that doesn't mean that one person is doing something that's more important than the other person. What it means is you have a partnership and you've decided to divide labor so that you can accomplish the whole task together. And so we work together in order to accomplish what God has called us to. We become one and we work together to see that happen. Oneness includes intimacy in your emotions, your spiritual life, your finances, and your sexuality. And we see in Scripture that sex was designed by God as a mechanism to express and consummate that oneness. And this is the reason why in the Bible we're taught that sex is supposed to be reserved for that one relationship, that one intimate relationship of marriage. It's not meant to be shared with a whole bunch of people because you can't be one with a whole bunch of people. And when you do that, you start to damage the mechanism that you use to create oneness with your spouse. And so one illustration I like to take uh, is food, because everybody loves food. And when you think about food, food has a lot of purposes, right? Food is, is, is something that we, we ingest, obviously, for our nutrition, but it's also something that we ingest for pleasure. It's something that uh, helps us celebrate. It helps us celebrate culture or something great that's happening in our life. Uh, sometimes food is just for comfort, just eating that tub of ice cream, whatever it is, right? But we have, there's a lot of purposes for food. But what happens when I take the purpose of pleasure in food and make it more important than the purpose of nutrition. When pleasure becomes the biggest reason why I eat food, I actually create brokenness in my health. I can, I can expose myself to all kinds of chronic illnesses associated with um, abusing food. You know, uh, diabetes and, and heart disease and high blood pressure and all kinds of things that can come with the abuse of food. Because the primary purpose of food, no matter if it has other purposes, the primary purpose of food is our nutrition. Because it's the energy we need to sustain our bodies and keep us, keep us active. But if I put a different purpose as primary, it creates brokenness. So think about this in the case of our sexuality. <clears throat> it's not quite the same as food. You shouldn't serve it at parties. But there are multiple purposes. Come on, we can have some fun, people. Let's go. We can have some fun. There's multiple purposes for sex. Sex obviously is pleasurable. Sex uh, is, is something that we can give for comfort. We can celebrate with one another in sex. But the primary purpose of sex, according to the Bible, is building oneness. We build oneness with the one to whom we are married. So what happens, again, when I take pleasure and I elevate it over oneness? It's brokenness. Brokenness comes into my life. Pleasure is a wonderful aspect of sex, but it's not the most important aspect. But when I make it the most important aspect, it creates brokenness in my life and in the life of those around me. So love and submission in marriage is about building oneness, mutual love, mutual submission, growing in your connection emotionally, spiritually, sexually, and living and sharing your dreams together. There's a lot more to say about marriage that we're not going to get into today. And like I said, I'm not the expert. Um, but let me give a couple of closing thoughts. And the band is going to come and we're going to have a, a time of worship as we, as we close. But hear this. Great marriages don't happen by accident. They take hard work. You can't just expect that your marriage is naturally going to be good just because you're attracted to each other and just, 
just because you're having fun right now. You can't just expect that you just leave it alone and it's going to be fine. It takes hard work. The greatest athletes in the world, maybe they have some natural ability, but the only reason they're the greatest is because they've put in the hard work and discipline every day, and that hard work paid off. The most successful people in the world, maybe they had a couple of lucky moments, but they're only successful because they put in the hard work and discipline, and they've done what it's taken to move through the hard things to get to a place of success. Don't expect to have a healthy successful marriage unless you're willing to do the disciplined hard work that it takes, but that hard work is so worth it. God gave us this gift for a reason because he saw beauty in it and he knew that it would help us to accomplish our purpose as image bearers of God. So together with your spouse, read this passage and others, figure out what it means in your marriage to love each other and to submit to one another, to put each other's needs First, to partner with Jesus as he forms each of you and to grow in your oneness together. But hear this, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you're widowed, whatever your relationship status, understand what I'm about to say because I think it's one of the keys to learning how to love each other. No matter what you've done, no matter how much you've messed up, No matter how much you've gotten wrong, God loves you. But no matter how much someone else has done, no matter how much they've messed up, no matter how much they've done wrong, God loves them too in the same way. And it's only when we understand that that we can learn to love others. No matter how unlovable you think you are, you are loved with an intensity that can't just be expressed in words. So God came as the man, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. And he died for the sins of others as well. And you need to recognize your own issues so that you can love someone who's as imperfect as you. And this is the good news of Jesus. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever could understand or would even dare to admit. But we're more loved by God than we could ever understand or ever hope to be loved. And we understand that that you're more flawed and sinful than you thought, but more loved and accepted than you thought. It humbles you, but also elevates you. It humbles you to recognize that the flaws and sins of the people around you Those are forgiven as much as the flaws and sins of your own heart. But you are loved and empowered in order to take that love that God has given you and also share that love with others. God knows everything about you. All the best, all the worst. You can hide it from your friends. You can hide it from your spouse. You can hide it from your pastor. But you can't hide it from the Lord. He knows all the terrible dark things in your heart and he loves you still. You can't get that deal anywhere else. The fear we often have is that someone will get to know me, the real me, and then they'll reject me. And so we hide our real selves from people, even in marriage. But God knows the real you, and he hasn't rejected you. He came as Jesus Christ and died for you. And that should give us the liberty and the bravery, especially in marriage, to start to reveal the real us to each other and allow Jesus into the center of that to bring forgiveness and healing and transformation as we walk with him together. Let's pray. We thank you, God, so much 
for your incredible love for us. You love us so deeply that you didn't just declare it from heaven or write us a book, but you took on flesh to become the man Jesus Christ to come and serve and submit even in this sinful world. He became the lowest of servants, dying on the cross for our sins, knowing all of our darkness, all of our sin, all of, all of the, the, the nastiness of our heart, yet still, Lord, you loved us enough to make a way for salvation and transformation. And so God, I pray that that truth of the gospel would inform us and empower us and transform us in order to love each other, whether, whether we're single or whether we're talking about friendships or talking about marriage, Lord, help us to love each other with the love you have given us. And Jesus, we think of the image of, of you being the husband and the church being the bride and how you have served us and loved us and continue to care for us and are transforming us. And Lord, help us to submit to you in that process. And God, I want to lift up marriages in the room, knowing that marriage is hard, knowing that there is so much pain represented in the room, knowing that there are not only people who are, are married here, but people who have gone through really hard divorces or lost a spouse and so many situations represented. God, I pray that your spirit would come and bring comfort and peace. Lord, I pray for healing for marriages. I pray for honesty in marriages. Lord, I pray for the truth of Jesus to come and bring life and light to marriages. And God, that in the church, not just APA, but in the church in general, Lord, we would be able to show such an amazing vision for marriage and sexuality and gender. Lord, that it wouldn't be our words or our arguments that would convince the culture, but it would just be the fruitfulness and the beauty of our relationships that draws people in to what you have to say about these issues. God, let that be true about APA. And for those who are struggling today, we pray that you would come in and bring a miracle, that you would come in and do a transformational work. Those who are on the verge of their marriage collapsing, we pray in Jesus' name there be healing. In Jesus' name there be forgiveness. In Jesus' name you would bring people together to work out what you have brought together and what you say is good. We pray this in your holy and mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Our prayer team is going to come. Maybe you and your spouse want to come for prayer. And no one's going to judge you if you do. Maybe you've got something going on that is really hard and you need someone to pray with you. Maybe you just want someone to pray a blessing over you because things are going great and you want them to keep going great. Maybe you're just in a painful season and you're going to come as an individual. We want to pray for you. Or maybe you came with a need completely unrelated to the message. You've just been waiting for me to stop talking so that you could come for prayer. We just want to invite you to come and respond. In the meantime, the band is going to play and lead us in a song of worship. And I want you to reflect on the goodness of God in all situations as he gives you strength and blesses you. Would you stand? Prayer team, please come right away so that people can come and receive prayer.